Good morning. Our scripture for this morning is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's, uh, let's go to our God in prayer. Would you please pray with me? My Father, this morning as we gather together, we affirm what has just been read. God, that your name is majestic in all the earth. Father, we thank you for the glimpses of your glory that we get to observe all around us. And God, we thank you for the, the, the more robust glimpse of your glory that we, that we see in your word. Because in it, we get to see more and more of your character, and we get to see your son who loves us, who has redeemed us. And God, it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, a few years ago, there was a video that came out, and this video was entitled, the maker. And uh, it, was, it was set up as this profile of, of a guy, and, and um, you know, it was really artfully done. It was set somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, so it had very much like Pacific Northwest vibes. You know, expensive cameras, people who knew how to use them. And, and it opens with this guy saying, he says, I've always loved making things with my hands. It's something tactile that I can feel with my fingers, and I can feel with my soul even. And he, he points out, you know, other people have passions. And he says, you know, sports players, sports players, sports players love to play their sports. Musicians love to play their music pieces. He's referring to instruments when he says music pieces. And when he says that, you, you begin to think, like, is this guy for real? And the answer is, no, he's not. Because the very next line of this video, he says, but for me, I love to make toast. So this video is, is a spoof, um, and it's, it's pretty funny, and it's, it's pretty well done. Pretty soon after that line, uh, there's some B-roll footage of him taking off a flannel jacket to reveal, to reveal yet another flannel underneath. Um, and it's ultimately a, a satire of the sort of creator culture that has become really popular, right, where everyone has to be an artist, or everyone is an artist. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not an Instagrammer. I'm an artist. I'm a content creator. Even if your art is going to someplace cool and taking a selfie, you know, in front of a piece of art that someone else has made, right, that's my art. Um, anyway, 
Now, there are, are several uh, real artists doing real amazing things and sharing it with the world through social media platforms, and that is, that is a lovely thing, something um, that benefits us. But there's also a lot of silliness, and this video pointed that out. But all silliness aside, that impulse within us to make something, to create, especially to create things of beauty is, is good and natural and right. Why? Well, because according to Genesis 1.27, we are made in the image of God. And who is this God in, whom, in whose image we are made? Well, we are now five weeks into what will be a nine-week series exploring that very question. And friends, we are not even going to scratch the surface But one of the characteristics that we're going to be looking at today, one of the characteristics that we see clearly in Psalm 8 is this, that God is our creator. See, we have this impulse to create, this impulse to do beautiful things and to share them with other people because our God does exactly that. So this characteristic of God, the fact that God is our creator, that is going to be our focus this morning. And then we're going to hone in after establishing that on the shocking reality that despite his greatness and his grandeur, this creator God is mindful of us. So let's dig in. We're going to begin by looking at verses 1 through 3 together. So would you please read with me? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of, of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, and we're going to stop right in the middle of that sentence. I'm just going to focus on these, these three verses for, for just a minute. Right. Looking at these verses... What do we see? What is this? Well, ultimately, this is a hymn. This is a song of praise and adoration of our God as the creator of everything that exists. And in these verses, we see two very important things. First, that God did create everything that exists. Everything that we observe is the result of His creative activity. It's the result of the work of His fingers. But we're also told in these verses why. Why did God create? And we see very clearly He created for His own glory. Our God engaged in the work of creation. He made all of the beautiful things that exist in order to tell us something of His greatness and His glory of his immensity, that he demonstrates to us the wonders of his creativity. That's what we observe when we look at the things that he has made. Now, I want to I address for a moment what I think is a prevalent but a deeply problematic perception. And that perception is that the more that we dig into the wonder of creation, the wonder of the natural world, the more we study and examine it, the less inclined we're going to be to be people of faith, right? That perception is real. It exists. But I think it is deeply flawed. 
Right? There's a perception that faith and science are diametrically opposed, but friends, that is not at all the case. As Cambridge professor of experimental physics, so clearly a dummy, uh, Russell Calburn says, he says, understanding more of science doesn't make God smaller. It allows us to see His creative activity in more detail. And this isn't a recent idea. The 16th century Protestant reformer John Calvin echoed a similar sentiment in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, writing that those who have, quote, quaffed or even tasted, this is, I just love that language, quaffed or even tasted the study of such subjects as astronomy, medicine, and the natural sciences penetrate with their aid far more deeply into the secrets of the divine wisdom. And I think it can be argued that the foundations for modern science have been laid by Christians. In fact, two Franciscan friars, uh, Roger Bacon and William of Ockham, laid the empirical and methodological foundations for the scientific method. Uh, Far from going against his faith, Bacon believed himself to be, quote, offering a genuinely Christian approach to nature. And in an essay he wrote uh, entitled Of Atheism, he gets a little salty. He says, It is true that a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. You know, it's a little salty. Uh, Hans uh, Hans Halverson, who's a, a, a professor and philosopher of science at Princeton, he argues that there is a natural connection between uh, between a theistic worldview and a scientific one. He says that the first scientists assumed that the universe that they were studying was ordered and consistent. And that those assumptions are what made scientific discovery possible. But this idea was founded on the belief that the universe was designed and created by God, who, quote, by God according to a a blueprint that could be discerned by rational creatures like ourselves. So far from discouraging empirical investigation, belief in God spurred early scientists on to pursue it. And according to Halverson, belief in God still provides a better philosophical foundation for science than atheism. I think this point was brought home powerfully by a Nobel Prize winning physicist and Christian, uh, William Phillips, who writes, I see an orderly, beautiful universe in which nearly all physical phenomena can be understood from a few simple mathematical equations. I see a universe that, had it been constructed slightly differently, would never have given birth to stars and planets, let alone bacteria and people. And there is no good scientific reason for why the universe should not have been different. Many good scientists have concluded from these observations that an intelligent God must have chosen to create the universe with such beautiful, simple, and life-giving properties. Many other equally good scientists are nevertheless atheists, but both conclusions are positions of faith. Isn't that a powerful testimony? This Nobel Prize-winning physicist, when he looks at the heavens, he doesn't see, on the one hand, complete randomness and chaos, nor does he see, on the other hand, simply the workings of a fine-tuned machine. No, when he looks, he sees the glory of God. And it affirms that this is a very reasonable conclusion for us to draw as well. And I think if we are able to set aside our biases for a moment or, or take a break 
from the all-consuming busyness we, all, we so often throw ourselves into, we too will be able to see the glory of God when we look at the things that he has made. So think for a minute. What is your favorite place in nature? Yosemite, the Grand Canyon. I mentioned it in an email this week. Uh, for me, it is, it's the Swiss Alps. I mean, this is country that if you're there standing on the ground with your own two feet, observing what you're seeing with your own two eyes, it is hard to believe that you're not looking at a picture. It's just like too perfect. But forget the places, forget the places that I just mentioned. Like what about Strands or Laguna Beach or the canyon that's like just over there? Right? We are surrounded We are surrounded by sights that declare the glory and majesty of God. So are you taking time to observe? Now, when we are in a place of utter beauty, I think a common reaction that people have, and and I distinctly remember this this feeling the first time I saw the Grand Canyon, when we are in a place that is just truly majestic, how do we tend to feel? We tend to feel small, right? And when we look at, at a mountain or, or observe the ocean and we realize for a second, you know, this, this mountain has been there and, and empires have risen and fallen and this mountain remains constant, doesn't care. Or this ocean, like millions upon millions upon millions of people have, have gone across it and, and we have, have, have put so much meaning into it, but the ocean is relatively indifferent to us. It can make us feel small and insignificant. And, you know, if something in nature at, at some point has caused you to feel small and insignificant, let me, let me make you feel smaller and more insignificant for just a sec. So think for a minute with me. Imagine that our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, was the size of North America. It's a good-sized continent. Well, then our entire solar system, which includes our eight planets, sorry, Pluto, uh, five dwarf planets, it has 200 plus moons along with uh, over a million asteroids. So if the galaxy is the size of North America, our solar system with all of those things that I just mentioned would be the size of a coffee cup. The Earth would be a barely visible speck within that coffee cup. On a continent, this is just our galaxy. It's believed that there are nearly two trillion galaxies. We cannot even begin to fathom the extent of the grandeur of all that God has made. But notice in verse 3 how the psalmist describes God bringing those things into existence. What are they the work of? They are the work of his fingers, of his fingers. When we describe building something, what imagery do we use? We, 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 use, we talk about our blood, sweat, and tears going into our projects. You know, it's, it, we put our backs into it. We get our hands dirty. Now, I'm, I'm being very generous to myself with the, the pronoun we because I, I build nothing. But when other people describe things that they are able to do, um, That's the imagery that I hear them using. But when God was at work building something that is so beyond our ability to comprehend, what appendage does he use? 
he uses his fingers. All right, now this is poetry, okay? God does not have a body, nor does he have fingers. And Genesis describes God as speaking the world into existence. So this is not a contradiction, friends. This is a metaphor, imagery used to communicate a deeper truth. And what is being communicated through this metaphor? Well, two things, I think. One, that God is so great that creation was not a labor for him. And second, let's get to, get to this by asking a question. Who uses their fingers to create? Artists use their fingers to create. Creation is God's work of art. And think about it. God could have created a very bland universe and, and still been called majestic for, for doing so. He could have made things black and white and simple, but he didn't. He made beautiful things. And art almost always communicates something about the artist. And what do we learn about God from his works? Well, we learn about his glory and his majesty. We see his amazing creativity and his love of beauty. And we also see, as Paul adds in Romans 1.20, his eternal power and divine nature. Those things are evident in what he has made. Well, if all of this is true, Right? If God is really so big, so mighty, so powerful, and if we, by comparison, are so small, it begs the question that David goes on to ask. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 together. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? If God is able to do all of the things that the Bible describes him as doing, I think it is natural for us to ask, does he really care about us? Right? I mean, who are we? But the Bible affirms over and over again that despite God's glory and his grandeur, despite his majesty, our creator is mindful of us. And that's what the following verses go on to affirm. So let's read the rest of Psalm 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him, referring to humans, with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you get what this is saying? That God in all of his glory and majesty, the one who is capable of fashioning what we aren't even close to being able to even fathom, looks to us, tiny humans, and he says, you, tiny human, you get to bear my image. You, tiny human, have been crowned as a result with glory and honor. You, tiny human, get to exercise dominion over my creation. And Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have failed to do so well. But what this is saying 
is that the creator of everything, everything, is mindful of you. Do you hear that? And can you let that sink in? And what a contrast right, to the idea that is so commonly espoused, right, that no one is in charge, that no one really cares, that there is no meaning, that we don't matter. Jean-Paul Sartre captured this sentiment in his work, Being in Nothingness, when he described humanity as, quote, a useless passion. There's a song by, by an artist named Andrew Bird in which he, envisioned a, he envisions an esteemed panel being asked the question, why are we alive? And they replied by saying, you're what happens when two substances collide, and by all accounts, you really should have died. I listen to very uplifting music. Um, but when you are looking at life from a purely horizontal perspective, those types of conclusions make a degree of sense. Right, if there is no God and things are really just random, and the world feels really big, but in reality it's just a speck within a coffee cup, and my life is just a blip, you know, here one day and gone the next, then I really don't matter. And, and saying that, I think to a degree, can sound brave, right? I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with reality, right? But it sounds brave for about five seconds because then you realize that those who say that don't live that way because we can't. So if you're going to affirm that idea, it seems that you're given two options. Either you give in to despair or you live a contradiction, but the Bible frees us from either bad option. It humbles us by acknowledging, yes, you are a tiny human. But it lifts us up by saying that despite that, the God of the universe is mindful of you. Regardless of anything that you have to offer, regardless of any gifts or lack of gifts, the greatest among us to the very least, God is mindful of all of us. C.S. Lewis captures this point beautifully in The Weight of Glory when he writes, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it, is but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Right? This has massive implications for the way in which we see ourselves and other people, doesn't it? And you want to know the proof of the fact that God is mindful of us? That he knows us? that he loves us, that he cares for us. The proof of that is Jesus. Let's look again at, at the question in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Where the word translated care here is the Hebrew word pakad, which literally means to visit. And the King James Version of, uh, of the Bible translates this verse well when it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? 
And the Septuagint, which is the, the first century BC uh, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and it's significant for us because this is the version of the Bible that is often quoted by the authors of the New Testament. It translates this word, pakad, with the Greek word, epis- uh, <laughs> uh, episkeptomai, thank you, uh, episkeptomai, which also means to visit. Okay, you might be wondering, who cares? Well, I'll tell you why you should. Um, see, we see this word, episkeptomai, used elsewhere in the Bible. It occurs in, in this way, in the same manner in the New Testament. It's in the Gospel of Luke, and it's spoken out of the mouth of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And he says this in response to the news that Jesus was coming. And he says this in Luke 1, verse 68, "'Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited,' and again, that's that word, episkeptomai, "'he has visited and redeemed his people.'" What assurance do we have that God actually cares about us? Because he has visited and redeemed us in Jesus. And how did he do so? He did so by becoming like us. See, verse 5, this word in in, in, uh, Psalm 8 Right, we read, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, referring to humanity. For us, if we're to read this, especially for feeling like, like a tiny human, right, that is a, a startling, earth-shattering, life-altering reality. Like, God really knows me and cares about me? Right, when applied to us, it, it elevates us and it lifts us up. But in Hebrews chapter 2, the same verse is applied to Jesus. There we read, you made him, again, referring specifically to Jesus, a little lower than the angels. That same phrase, which for us exalts us, gets us excited. It's like, really, this is, this is true of me? For Jesus, that is evidence of his willingness to be humiliated. Right, we're told in Colossians that, that it is through Jesus that everything came into existence and that he, uh, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But this one was willing for a time to be made a little bit lower than the angels. Jesus had to empty himself in order for that to be true of him for a time. And why did he do it? Love, grace, mercy. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. One of my favorite books to read our kids is uh, is the book, The Giving Tree. So it's an old one. I think it was written in uh, 1964 by Shel Silverstein. And I've got, I've got friends who criticize this book as, you know, not establishing healthy boundaries and fine, fine point taken, um, whatever. The reason, though, that I love this book, and I love this book, and I was, I was reading some things about it online this week, and there's just like this universal phenomenon, like people have uh, like the hardest time reading the book without crying. Um, 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm one of them. The reason, though, that I love this book is because I see it as such a beautiful picture of the joyful, self-sacrificing love of Jesus that he has demonstrated to us in the gospel. All right, if you need a refresher, the book opens with a big, beautiful tree that loves a little boy. And the tree delighted to, to observe this boy that she loved, delighting in her. Right, so she was happy when the boy would, would swing from her branches and eat her apples and rest in her shade. Well, a little bit of time goes by and the boy comes back to the tree and the tree's excited and she wants him to you know, go back to swinging and playing and eating, eating her apples. And the boy's like, I'm, I don't have time for that. I need money. And she's like, well, I, I don't have money. I'm a tree. Um, but she says, well, why don't you take my apples and, and go into the city and sell them and then you can have money and then you can be happy. So the boy takes the apples and he goes and he sells them. More time passes, he comes back to the tree and he says, well, well now, now I want a house because I want to get a, a wife and have kids and I need a house if I'm going to do those things. And the tree says, well, I, I don't have a house. The forest is my home. But here, take my branches. And the boy does and he builds a house. Well, he comes back a little bit later on and the house didn't really work out. He's sad. And he wants to get away from his problems. And so this time he wants a boat. From the, he wants a boat and the tree says, well, again, the tree, don't have a boat. But you can take my trunk. Right, reduce me to a stump. So that's exactly what the boy does, and he builds his boat. Right. Granted, not healthy boundaries, but, but isn't that exactly what Jesus has done for us? And, and throughout the story, right, every time that the tree gives something to the little boy, become old man, there's this refrain, and the tree was happy. The tree was happy to give of herself. Friends, Jesus, again, was the creator of everything that exists. Yet for our sake, he was willing to become poor. He gave everything that he had. He wasn't a tree, obviously, but he was willing to be hung on a tree all for us. And why did he do it? Or what was his attitude when he engaged in that redemptive work? Well, we're told by Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus engaged in that work for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. Friends, that joy is you. That joy is knowing that you could be redeemed, that you could enter into right relationship with the Father because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus gave himself freely, gave of himself freely and with joy because he is mindful of you. In Christ, God has visited and redeemed his people. God has visited and redeemed you. That is an astonishing, an astonishing reality. And I think we need, we need both of these things and we need to hold them in tension. Right? Our God is so 
great. And all you have to do in order to prove that is open your eyes and look around. Look at what he has made. And when you really do, it is hard for us to keep from saying, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But despite his glory and his splendor, he knows and he loves you. He has come near in Jesus. And that, I think, is the greatest reason for us to declare, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for the assurance that we have not only of your greatness and your splendor, but also your tender love and care for us. So God, we pray that you would help us to believe that, to internalize that truth, to, to see our, our life and our circumstances, to observe the world through that lens, that you are great, you are mighty, you make beautiful things but you also draw near to us. Your greatness wasn't an excuse to distance yourself. Instead, you humbled yourself and you identified with our lowly estate. You identified with our pain so that you might take away our sin so that we could come before you. Lord, help us to, to hear that truth anew. Help us to be changed by it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.